Um, and we'll be continuing that tonight. So uh, last time we examined the holiness of God, that God is God. He is categorically distinct, separate, and yet he condescends himself to relate with us, much like what we celebrate in uh, the Christmas story, that Jesus would uh, walk among us, dwell with us. He would be Emmanuel, right? Uh, and this holy God is still worthy of our devotion, our obedience. He is thrice holy and he displays his glory in how he saves and redeems sinners. So that is um, a quick recap of what we covered last time we were together. And tonight we'll be looking at another closely related attribute, the faithfulness of God the faithfulness of God. And there are a number of Old Testament passages we can consult, we can study, but we're going to ground our time in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there and I'll read our passage for us and then we'll pray. It's a very familiar passage, but I think it's familiar for um, a good reason because there's much to glean and gain from our study So Genesis chapter 22, we'll be reading beginning in verse one, all the way down to verse 14. This is the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. God, you are so faithful and kind to reveal yourself through the pages of scripture, to display what kind of God you are, that you would pursue your people, that you would grant faith and 
allow us to live by faith because you are a trustworthy God. We pray now that as we dive into your word, you would pierce our hearts, that you will away any resistance, any distraction, that we might be fully engaged, stunned at the wealth of truth here that should encourage our hearts and foster a greater devotion to Jesus Christ. We pray that your word would go forth, Lord, and not return void, but it would equip your people to love and cherish your son, to walk in obedience. And so you, you use your word now. We plead and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And David Livingston was a missionary who set sail for Africa around 1840. He persevered through uh, quite grueling ministry conditions to bring the gospel to people who had never heard of Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, he was almost mauled to death in the middle of the night by a lion. So he had to shoot it and kill it in order to save his own life. And that's just crazy, right? You know, what did you do on your mission trip? Well, we had VBS, gospel presentation, and I also killed a lion, all in a good day's work. But for the next 17 years, Livingston endured the difficulties of disease, hardship, to minister the gospel. And he returned briefly to Britain in 1857, having the opportunity to address students at Cambridge University. And here's what he said to them. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life. Yes, they may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Now we hear that, we're left inspired, convicted, maybe even slightly disheartened by such a faithful testimony. Sometimes we have the same reaction when it comes to the Bible. We read of Old Testament saints like Noah, Moses, David, and we're encouraged and discouraged at the same time, right? We're stirred to follow in their footsteps and live sold out for God, and if we're honest, we're also a little dejected because we see how far we are from standing in their shoes. I mean, just cracking open the Bible every day and tying our shoes, that's challenging enough. How will we ever get to a place where we're shooting lions and calling sacrifices a privilege? The decisive factor though, is where we're looking, where we're looking. Because the reason comparison is the thief of joy is often because we're obsessed with ourselves. We can be so fixated upon our faith, how we're measuring up or not, that we lose sight of the faithfulness of another, of God. See, the point of Hebrews 11 and the great hall of faith is not simply to celebrate the remarkable lives of saints who have gone before us, it is to set 
our gaze in the same direction as theirs. The course of Hebrews 11 is obvious. By faith, by faith. That by faith, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, they ran the race looking to the one who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. I'm sure you've seen those crazy stunts, those circus acts where the archer has to shoot the apple on top of the lady's head. And we might applaud the courage and borderline insanity of the woman, but we all recognize the praise is reserved especially for the one on the opposite side. I mean, it would end terribly if you had someone incompetent behind the trigger. No, the lady is able to entrust herself, not because her faith is in the bow and arrow or in her ability to stand completely still. No, her faith is primarily in the skill of the archer. And so it is at the outset, we must not confuse who the hero of our story is. Yes, as we will see, Abraham demonstrates exceptional faith. He trusts and he obeys even when the costs are steep. But listen, his faith hangs on God's faithfulness. One produces the other. Abraham's faithfulness is only wise, good, and extraordinary when we realize what undergirds it. When we recognize God's faithfulness is wise, good, extraordinary. In other words, our faithfulness depends upon a right acknowledgement and application of God's. Say that again, our faithfulness in life depends on a right acknowledgement and application of God's faithfulness. That we trust and obey because God is trustworthy, that he is worthy of our obedience. And our passage tonight presents this to us in high definition. We're merely going to walk through our text to behold Abraham's faith, but all the more God's faithfulness. We'll start with the promise, the promise if you're taking notes. Now we're dropping in, we're parachuting into the narrative as it says in verse one, after these things. And it's crucial to know what has already transpired because it will add weight to what will transpire. So after what things? Well, you have to recall, we are introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12 when he's about 75 years old. And God calls Abraham out of his homeland. Go from your country and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And Abraham responds, he departs, he exercises faith, he trusts and obeys. But we know he doesn't always do this perfectly. The story continues and there's a giant chasm between where he's at and where God promises his family line will be. After all, it's just the two of them, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They have no children. How will God multiply their numbers when they have no offspring? And in their weakness, they take matters into their own hands, having a surrogate child, Ishmael, through their house servant, Hagar. 
not exactly a beaming example of trusting in God's promise. But we understand to a certain degree, we can sympathize, they're old. Years have passed by. How are they supposed to be a family, let alone a nation, when they have nothing to show for it? It'd be like if I told you, I'm going to make you a millionaire, just wait and see. But then a decade in and you're still swimming in debt? Well, you begin to question, to doubt, to do something about it. And God does do something about it. In Genesis 15, 17, God reassures Abraham of his promises that despite appearances and the situation, he provides more details of what he's planning, that their offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that kings will come forth from their line. But it's a long road ahead, Abraham. It's not until Genesis 21, when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah 90, that God blesses them with Isaac. And God assures Abraham in Genesis 21, 12, that it is through Isaac, through Isaac, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is the last story lodged into our heads as we approach Genesis 22. That after years of wrestling, wondering if they would ever have a child of their own to finally see God's promise beginning to come to fruition with the birth of Isaac. After years of joy, as their little bundle matures into a young man, as we find him in Genesis 22. After years of anticipation to see how God would continue to enlarge in their family, show his faithfulness in blessing. After these things, years of happiness, years of hope, we read on in verse one that God tested Abraham. This calls for a timeout, right? It's why it's important to be students of God's word. Do you have room in your theology for suffering and sovereignty, for the faithfulness of God to still ring true in the midst of testing? You see, God is not obligated to keep promises he has not made. He never promises us a life free of difficulties and trials. In fact, troubles and tribulations, they are guaranteed to us. But what God does promise is to be with us, to never forsake us, to work all things for our good, even things that baffle us or appear to be wrong. Now we're brought behind the scene and told explicitly of God's intention. But Abraham, poor guy, he's not privy to any of this. There's no Genesis 22:1 for him to consult and read. And we might be inclined to think this is rather cruel of God, not only the kind of test that he will give, but the very fact that God tests at all. I mean, if God is omniscient, why would he even do this? Uh, there's a popular Netflix show called, Is It Cake? You know, I don't know if you guys have seen it or not, um, but the premise of the show is these bakers come on and they try to replicate common objects to trick the judges. And so two of the same objects are presented where, where the judges have to discern which one is real and which one is made from cake. And some of these baked creations, they are pretty 
impressive, pretty convincing. They look legit. You know, is it a, a rubber duck? I don't know. Is, is that a beach ball or is that an actual purse? No way to tell. There's only one surefire method to determine what's cake and what's not. It's in the cutting. Then you discover what something is made of, what's on the inside. And so God tests us to reveal what's on the inside so that we discover what we're really made up of, where our faith is resting. And when cancer strikes, is our hope ultimately in skilled oncologists and medical treatments? When the job market is slow, do we put our trust in our resume and interviewing abilities? When we struggle with singleness and contentment, is our happiness bound up in people and circumstances? Or is it in a faithful God? God tests us, not because he lacks knowledge, but because we do. You know, it's one thing to say God is faithful. It's another thing to know it, to experience it when our faith is actually stretched and exercised. And listen, there is no way around this. We'll never know if our faith is tried and true unless it's actually tried and proven true. I mean, you've experienced this, right? You see how you're growing, making strides as a Christian when you refuse to compromise when told to do something unethical at work. When you persist in purity and obedience instead of succumbing to pornography or being unequally yoked. When you hold fast to biblical convictions on gender, marriage, abortion, even when society is hurling insults your way. You grow the most in the face of adversity not when you flee it. It's been said for the Christian, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to enter one. Beloved, don't forget in the dark what you learn in the light. And testing, testing is one of God's instruments to reinforce and ingrain the lessons we've learned to make them real for us. This is what God is after when he tests Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I, verse two. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, back in Genesis 12, Abraham is instructed to leave behind what's familiar, to go somewhere, do something he can't quite fully grasp. And the instruction is repeated now in Genesis 22. Leave behind what's familiar to go somewhere and do something you can't fully grasp, to slaughter and offer your son as a burnt offering. And these bookends reveal that from start to finish, Everything in the story of Abraham is tied to faith. Chapter 22 then is the series finale. I mean, all you have to do is just read the chapter headings in the Bible if you're using the ESV. The juxtaposition is jarring. Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac. Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. 
And notice how the, the screws are tightened in verse two. In some translations, like my ESV here, Isaac's name is placed in the middle. But in the original text, in the Hebrew, Isaac is at the end. So that it reads more literally like this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Each description narrows in on the target, moving from the general to the specific. It'd be like if I told you, appreciate your pastor. And you might wonder, well, which one? We have so many here at Lighthouse. And I said, your only practice pastor. It's like, okay, that helps, but do Alessandro and Christian count because they're ministry associates? And then I said, whom you love. And you're like, aha, I got it. It's Alan, hopefully. There's a similar phenomenon going on here. Abraham tracks along with the descriptions. The buildup is huge. Yes, he's my son, my only son of the covenant promise. The son I do love, Isaac. But then the backbreaker, delight devolves to devastation when the command is delivered. Yes, offer that one. Offer him as a burnt offering. And notice the totality. There's no escaping this. Not a slicing off of a fingertip or a small first degree burn. Abraham is commissioned to set Isaac aflame until he is completely consumed. Now, quick caveat, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. And we know that in the end, Isaac is spared. So don't, misappropriate this text and think that God is calling us to something as vile as human sacrifice. This is a test, a test that is unfathomable, a test of infinite proportions. I mean, given the choice between sacrificing my son in order to save everyone here at Praxis, it'd be tough. I'd be torn. Just kidding, right? Let's be real. As cute and endearing as you all are and as much as my son drives me up the wall sometimes, there'd still be no hesitation. I'm sorry, you'd all be dead if that's what it takes to spare my son. But poor Abraham, he's, in, he's not given an alternative. How's he going to respond? Read on verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now scholars estimate this is approximately a 40 to 45 mile trek up. Now, I've never done a marathon and I'm not too keen on hiking. There is no way I am doing both to slay my son. And yet here without a word, Abraham complies. He sets out with his donkey, two servants, chopped up wood for offering, and no sacrifice but Isaac. And the text tells us three days, three days journey. For three days, precious memories flood Abraham's thoughts. I mean, he recalls them all, the elation and goosebumps when Sarah confides that she's pregnant, the tears he holds back when he holds his baby boy 
the milestones Abraham witnesses as Isaac wobbles forward for his first steps, the treasured secret times he has to play in roughhouse with his son, times to teach him about God, manners, and life skills. Sneaking glances, Abraham feels his chest balloon with pride as a little boy has developed into a respectable young man. And then his chest deflates because for three days, those precious memories are mixed with dread at what he's about to do. Three days to rehearse God's haunting instructions. Every step is agonizing. You see, both Abraham and Isaac are dead men walking. When they reach the site, Abraham speaks, verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you hear that? I and the boy will worship. Abraham's faith is unwavering. God promised so Abraham can still worship despite the grim circumstances. And what's more, Abraham even announces he and Isaac will come again. They will return. And this seems like a contradiction to us because we know what Abraham is commanded to do. How will this be resolved? What is he thinking? Well, this is where the author of Hebrews helps us. Hebrews 11:9 offers insights into Abraham's brain. It says, Abraham considered God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Now think about that from Abraham's perspective. In his mind, there are only two possible outcomes. Isaac will die and God will break his covenant promise or since God cannot break his promise, Isaac cannot die. That even if Abraham slits his son's throat, burns his body to ashes, somehow, some way, God will bring him back to life. This is incredible. We have to suspend what we already know in order to grasp how amazing this is. I mean, as New Testament believers, we're well aware that God is capable of raising the dead. We're familiar with Lazarus. We know Jesus doesn't stay in the tomb. But Abraham, he has no concept of this. His faith in God's faithfulness is so strong, he believes in resurrection before there is any suggestion, any evidence of it, before resurrection has ever happened in human history. Maybe he does have one hint something kind of similar to what he experienced personally. Do you know what I'm talking about? When Isaac is born, the author of Hebrews calls Abraham as good as dead because he's just that old. You know, that's not very nice. Please, if you're gonna say that about me, say it behind my back. But we understand the point. It should be biologically impossible to have a kid at 100 but God has proven his ability to produce new life from a dead body, from Abraham's body. 
And here, as at Isaac's impending doom, he remembers. It should be biologically impossible to resurrect the dead. But if anyone can do it, it's gotta be God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Abraham would append, the Lord gives back. Both he and his son will return again. The man doesn't have it all worked out. He just trusts the one who does. And isn't that our comfort too? At seasons of loneliness, unemployment, dysfunctional family, in immense suffering in our lives, we may not understand all the plot twists, but we know the author, that he's good, that he loves us, that he's faithful. He's our confidence. That's why Abraham can move forward in obedience. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. So Abraham distributes the materials. He doesn't sabotage the plan by conveniently losing the torch of fire or just chucking the knife into the bush. No, he takes the fire, takes the knife and gives Isaac the wood for the burnt offering. All this foreshadowing, all these clues anticipating the sacrifice right around the corner. And as they ascend the mountain, father and son, Isaac breaks the silence. And it's gut-wrenching. He's old enough to carry the wood, but young enough to still ask like a child. We transition from the promise to the provision. Verse seven, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And we feel the tension because we know it's you, Isaac. And I am sure Abraham's heart was ripped to pieces. He knows. Yet how does Abraham reply? He knows something better. God will provide God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It would have been the opportune time for Abraham to explain everything, right? God is forcing me. He's commanding me to kill you. It would have been his last chance to abort the mission. You know, run, Isaac, make a break for it. But more important than knowing all the details or avoiding pain and death, Abraham wants to teach his son one vital lesson. God will provide. God always provides. As he has provided you as a son, Isaac, so God will provide faithfully a lamb. The time has arrived, location reached, and the scene unfolds in slow motion. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Are you there? You got to see Abraham arranging the rocks, laying the wood, and then at last holding 
his son. You have to pick up on the heartbreaking movement as he gently binds and places Isaac on top of the altar. He grips the knife, he raises his arm, he steadies himself. The gravity of the moment is palpable, it is breathtaking. That mere seconds separate Abraham from plunging the knife through his son, his only son whom he loves, Isaac. And then verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You can imagine Abraham has never heard sweeter words. The curtains are pulled back. Abraham has passed the test. He fears and adores God above everything. Certainly Abraham loves his son, but he loves being a son more, being a child of God. God provides for his own. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. There's one key word I want us to latch onto. One key word that ripples forth into eternity. Did you catch it? Instead. Instead. The ram was offered up instead of his son. The ram took the place of Isaac, a substitute. You see, friends, this story is more than a dramatic test. This story is a dramatic testimony. It is one thing to promise. It is a whole nother thing to deliver, to provide. And God is faithful to do both. Look at how Abraham commemorates the event, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Notice Abraham doesn't call the name of the place Abraham's test or Abraham's glowing obedience. No, he calls it Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. And there's double entendre here because the Hebrew verb for provide is ra'ah, the same verb translated for to see, to provide, to see. That God doesn't just test Abraham, he sees Abraham and then provides. All that has occurred on this mountain serves as a perpetual reminder of God's unwavering faithfulness of God's all seeing eyes of God's promise to provide. Beloved, where are the moments, the mountaintop experiences that serve as a reminder for you? Where are those times as you reflect on your life, you can look back and say, the Lord provides. Is it in how God has sustained you through the valley? through the darkness of depression or relational conflict or financial turmoil? 
is that how God has surrounded you with a community of believers to bear your burden, to encourage you in your faith? Is it most of all in how God has provided his son? At the climax of the narrative, as Abraham is about to slay his son, it is the angel of the Lord, capital Lord, who commands Abraham to stop. And if you read your Bible enough, you'll encounter the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, but nowhere, curious enough, in the New Testament after Jesus shows up. Why? There's debate about this, but in all likelihood, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Now let the ramifications of that sink in. This story is a template for another. See, thousands of years later, God sends the same angel of the Lord into the world, the same one who witnessed all these events. At the climax, Jesus Christ bears the cross on his back. He carries wooden beams up a different mountain, Mount Golgotha. And there he is bound, yes, by human hands, but ultimately by the hands of his father, placed on a holy altar. It pains the father as he stretches out his omnipotent hand to grip the dagger of his wrath over his son, his only son, whom he loves, Jesus Christ. And you know what happens next? Silence. There are no words to stop the father. There's no other angel of the Lord to cry out, do not lay your hand on him. Now the scene unfolds in slow motion. Beloved, are you there? Can you feel the thud of the nails as they pierce supple flesh? Can you smell the crisp air tainted with blood? Can you hear the son of God wheezing to culminate in that epic cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, we know the answer because of my sin. And what else can we say but that? Indeed, God will provide for himself the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the good news, the glorious news is this. For those who repent and believe, for those who place their faith in God's provision in Jesus Christ, he dies instead of you. He stands in your place as a substitute and absorbs the punishment you and I deserve. You see, every time we peer at the cross, we are peering into a mirror. That's where I belong. So look deeply until it fills you with fear and wonder. Fear that this is the depth of your sin and wonder that this is the height of his love, his grace, his faithfulness towards you. R.C. Sproul Jr. said, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once and he volunteered. And that enables us to confidently echo with apostle Paul in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give to us all things? 
If God has given us his prized possession, his very best, his own son, is there anything good he would withhold from you? And isn't this the crux of the matter? That by faith, will you believe in his faithfulness? He's pledged his son. Every test in life boils down to faith and where you're placing it. Perhaps for some of you, money has such a tight hold, it's caused you to cling to it with closed fists. And so you dismiss and justify your lack of generosity, your unwillingness to tithe as temporary, as understandable. Well, I'm just not in a financially stable place. When I've saved enough money in the emergency fund and for a house, then I'll be in a better position to give. God would want me to be secure, right? Even though you know God calls us to walk by faith, not by our finances. Perhaps for others, you're getting older. You're seeing your peers, your friends marry off and you worry about your future. There is less fish in the proverbial shrinking sea. And the sensible thing seems to be to cast your net wider. You know, maybe lower the bar, overlook whether someone you're interested in is godly, is even a believer. Surely the Lord would rather me be with someone than miserable and alone. Perhaps for some of you, work has you putting in long hours where you're barely finding the space to squeeze in quiet times. You've basically disappeared from church or being involved. Or perhaps your superiors are pushing you to cut some corners and participate in some shady stuff. And you find yourself wondering, God, I'm on the trajectory to really advance, to take off in my career and earn a huge paycheck. You can't be expecting me to look for a new job. Beloved, in every scenario, you're brought before the crossroads of faith. Will you put your hope, your trust, your worth in money, romance, career, or will you still trust and obey? Look, I am not denying, I am not minimizing how hard this is. I don't know what your Mount Moriah may be, but the Bible tells us this. If God can raise the dead, surely he can handle everything else. If God is faithful with addressing our biggest problem, our sin, then he will supply the grace for every smaller issue. He's given us his son. He's proven his love. The question is, will you believe in his faithfulness? Because that will determine yours. That's the secret the key to declaring I have never sacrificed because you understand he is the one faithful and kind to bless you with life in the first place. Let's pray. God, what a sobering and yet joy laden passage because it shows us that on one hand, you call us to difficult, costly, things. But on the other hand, you show us that you are a God who is faithful. That what you have revealed and promised in your word, Lord, we can take to the bank. We can build our lives Mm -hmm. upon your truth. 
And so help us, Lord, to walk by faith as we are gripped by your faithfulness, to live in obedience, trusting in your goodness, your love, as so brilliantly exemplified through your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent as our Savior and as our Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.